0: So I don't sort of go along with um, the view that you, that everybody on one side is good and everybody on the other is bad uh, and that you should hate people uh, of a different political or religious or sexual persuasion. So I suppose this has come from my own experience learning about myself and learning how people really seriously hated Uh, gay people, Mm. and there are still people who hate them.
1: My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. Although I'm a politician and an economist, this isn't a podcast about politics or economics. It's about living a good life, which is an idea that goes back to the Greek philosopher Aristotle. What Aristotle meant by a good life was the life that one would like to live. A life with pleasure, meaning and richness of spirit. The life that most of us were trying to live until everything else got in the way. In this podcast, I'll seek out guests, not because they're smart, but because they're wise. I'll speak with writers, athletes and social justice campaigners. With people who've been lucky and those who've experienced hard times. I've found their stories fascinating and I hope you do too. One of my favourite songs from the musical Hamilton is nonstop. It's about the incredible written output of Alexander Hamilton, economic ideas, constitutional thoughts, and letters. But the song could just as readily have been written for Michael Kirby, whose voluminous output spans books, speeches, United Nations reports, and of course legal judgments. During his time in the New South Wales Court of Appeal and the High Court of Australia, Michael Kirby shaped a distinct jurisprudence heavily influenced by international law and human rights. He did not always bring his fellow judges on board, however, and his dissent rate is the highest in the history of the High Court. In 1997, 1998, a year out from law school, I had the privilege of working. I was one of Michael Kirby's two judges associates. I answered the telephone, put thousands of letters in envelopes, made hundreds of cups of salon orange pico tea, and occasionally even had the chance to do some legal research. Over the 12 months I was in the role, I learned more from Michael Kirby than from anyone except my parents. He taught me not just about the law, but also about how to disagree without being disagreeable. He is without doubt a national living treasure, and it's a pleasure to have the chance to to speak with him today on The Good Life. Michael, thank you for joining me.
0: Thank you very much. I'm so moved by that introduction. I'm searching for a hanky to <laughs> wipe away, <laughs> wipe away <laughs> the tears that have accumulated over the years. No uh, but it's uh, nice to see you again. Uh, and I congratulate you on your uh, public career. It's, it's wonderful. I'm very proud if I had any influence on, uh, on your career.
1: You absolutely did. So I wonder if we can start talking about your, uh, your childhood and your schooling and how that shaped your view as to, as to what mattered in the world and what you most cared about.
0: Well I had, um, both my parents were young and uh, I was the eldest child and I grew up in a family of um, four children. Uh, we had had five but one died in infancy. Um, and um, we were very close, and we still are, though sadly of the six of us, my parents and four children, we are now three. But my two brothers and I uh, meet generally once a week or once a fortnight. Um, My father was a great reader. He would read to us um, Grimm's fairy stories and uh, other terrifying stories of... Um, morality gone wrong uh, and how uh, we must uh, learn the basic lessons of life. My mother was uh, very loving uh, and very perceptive. So the combination of them was just fantastic and and we were very greatly blessed. Uh, I went to the local Anglican um, church. Uh, I sang in the choir until I kept fainting too often, and they told me, you have a beautiful voice, Michael, but we can't afford the interruptions to the Book of Common Prayer. <laughs> uh, and then I uh, I went to school, public schools. My entire education was in public schools. Then to the University of Sydney, where I got involved in student politics. Uh, then to the bar or to the solicitor and a barrister. Uh, and then to an early appointment. So there it all is, all wrapped up. Uh, but uh, wonderful parents, wonderful teachers, public education. I'm a strong supporter of public schools.
1: So love and Grimm's fairy tales, and uh, and parents who who encouraged you towards the law, or where did where did the law come from? They, they neither of them were lawyers, were they?
0: No, um, there were no lawyers in our family. Although my mother's family were very well educated in Northern Ireland and um, my great-grandfather was a fellow of the Royal Society of Ireland. Um, He was an antiquarian and very interested in the history of Ireland Uh, and there were botanists and portraitists in her side of the family. My father's family came to Australia a little earlier um, and they, uh, they were very um, affected by the divisions, the religious divisions. They were mainly Roman Catholics, uh, though my father was a Protestant and Anglican. So um, this was the the background. Religion was somewhat more important in Australia in those days than it is today. And um, certainly I was affected by my uh, religious upbringing and I would still count myself um, as a a Christian. Uh, I was invited recently to become a patron of the Rationalist Society and I said I'd be proud to join but I revealed my lingering contact with the Anglican Church and they said, well, it's most unusual, it's most unusual, but (laughs) we'll make an exception in your case. So uh, they were the big influences Uh, My parents, my grandmother, my uh, siblings uh, and my schooling um, and uh, I was really very, very fortunate. My life has actually been a very fortunate life, I think, and um, there have been some uh, hard times but on the whole, leading up to when I uh, met my partner Jan, I've really had a very very easy path and then when Jan came along that was another great blessing in my life so there you are some strike at rich <laughs> I think I certainly <laughs> did that
1: let's let's just stay on on religion uh, I'm curious as to what you felt your Anglicanism gave you uh, did uh, was it through prayer or were there lessons that you learned from attending services, from reading the Bible? In what way did you draw, draw ethical sustenance from, that, from, from your uh, religiosity?
0: Uh, I went to St Andrew's uh, church um, on the corner of Concord Road and Parramatta Road and the minister there had been a padre in the Second World War because we're talking about the 1940s just after the, um, the Second World War concluded. Um, And he was a very broad-minded Anglican. Uh, It must be said that the Sydney Diocese of the Anglican Church, uh, as the global Anglican Church goes, is a fairly narrow and very Protestant version of the Anglican Church. Um, But I soon discovered that uh, Anglicanism, um, unlike some branches of Christianity and other religions, is... Uh, truly, a broad church. Uh, if if you like bells and smells, you can go to Christ Church St Lawrence. If you like a sort of a watered down version of that, you can go to St James Church in in King Street, Sydney. And if you are for the stern Protestant uh, ethic, then you go to the cathedral. and uh, And they all know the other exists, and they all understand that it's all part of the one. Communion, and I rather liked that fact that there was a space within the one church for different points of view. Uh, If I were to ask myself, I would certainly say I am a Protestant. Uh, I, I, I was brought up in that tradition that it was a very simple religion and essentially a religion. Of a revolutionary, Jesus, who came to give a new covenant and to introduce a more loving religion, as I see it. So, I having love at home uh, with my parents, love for my grandmother, um, qualified love for my siblings, um, <laughs> and uh, also um, loving teachers, uh, wonderful, devoted teachers, uh, then my religious element also had a great deal of love because I look on the religion of Jesus as a religion of reconciliation of kindness and love for one another and of reaching out and there's no point saying forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us or our trespasses if you don't do it and therefore you've got to, you, you've got to learn from what you're saying and mouthing in your prayers and um, I, I th- that, that's what I get out of it, I get out of it A a simple um, religion, not over grand, Um, Jesus in the manger, Jesus on the donkey, Jesus on the cross. A very simple religion and um, not too much hatred in there. And that's a good thing, I think, for a a global religion. And Anglicanism, after all, you've got to say, is the only big global um, branch of Christianity that uh, is admitting women to the priesthood, has admitted women bishops um, and so uh, from its very origins it had to reconcile itself to this Protestant Catholic divide within it, mm. and therefore it had to had to find a space for people with different perspectives and I think that's that 's not only good in religion as good in life
1: as you say that the church is is uh, evolving in its views now, but uh, there was no shades, shades of grey in how it approached homosexuality uh, through the, the 40s, 50s and 60s?
0: First of all, I was not conscious of, of that point in my own life that could mark me out. But uh, in those days, it really wasn't spoken about. It's only really later that that became... Uh, I can't remember ever... The Reverend Cecil Dillon, who was our priest at um, at the local Anglican church, ever, ever mentioning uh, gay uh, gay or homosexuals or anything of that kind. Nearmerle was the a Lutheran uh, pastor in Germany, one of those who stood with uh, Bonhoeffer uh, and risked his mm. life. He ultimately stood up, and uh, that was a very important principle for me to learn. And I learned it because my local minister brought him along to speak at St Andrew's Church at uh, at uh, Strathfield. And I thought that was a a very good thing.
1: Yes, those uh, those World War Two padres, I think, brought back an awful an awful lot of. Um, nuance and texture to the way, way in which they, they practice. From an early age, I mean, when I look back through your CV, I, I'm always struck with the sense of how do you fit in all these things? There seems to be a span of years in which you do about twice as, me, as much stuff as uh, ought to have been possible. You were living life like you were running out of time.
0: Chief Justice Spiegelman says that the, the the best biography of me hasn't yet been written. It'll be the psychological biography of what motivated me into becoming such a workaholic, and um, and it's probably true. Homosexuality was looming more importantly in my own mind, um, and when at a time when it was criminal, uh, it was really bad news. Um, and you therefore had to be very, very quiet about it to those you love most and to everyone else, to the whole world. As I look back, that's something I really rather resent, uh, and uh, I think that was um, a cruel thing to have been done to me, but uh, you just obeyed the rules and, and got on. And so I sank myself in student politics. Chief Justice Gleason, on my departure from the Court of Appeal, of new south wales for the high court said that i i entered a, a juggernaut i became a juggernaut of student politics and i was the chair of the of endless committee meetings i became a very good chairman uh, i'm still a very good chairman i was a very good presiding judge and had i been mm-hmm. the chief justice which could have happened in the way things fell out fell out it, it the whole story would have been a very different story because law is ever so hierarchical. However, uh, it was a good thing to learn to be a really good chairperson. People say Bob Hawke was was a wonderful chairman of uh, of the cabinet, and he he could he could uh, get the essence of it and and I think I have that skill. However, it all came good in the end. The story had a happy ending. I ultimately met Johan and um, I was with him uh, just uh, one day ago when we were having a very rare holiday. I can't be too angry about it, but I don't want that to happen to other young people. And I have got a sense of obligation to do what I can to make sure that uh, other people have a smoother and easier ride
1: so many strands uh, there let me just ask tease out a little bit more about being a good chair because it is one of the qualities that i often notice about you what what makes a good chair is is it uh, are there things that you do in the preparation for a, a meeting or a conversation that others may not do or is there something about uh, how you what things you're conscious of as the conversation is unfolding?
0: All of the above. I I was always a hard worker and a, a very good preparer for everything. I I didn't rely on inspiration. I really always worked hard, especially when I was appointed uh, the president of the Court of Appeal of New South Wales. Um, when I was first there, and I was only 30, 34 I think at the time and. Uh, 44 at the time, I'd been chairman of the Law Reform Commission for the first 10 years of the, my judicial life, but um, uh, I had to really work hard to keep up with these very, very brilliant people and in the end I joined them and I was able to, to um, get the best of what they had to say. It's really searching for what is common and what is indifference and then trying to Confront the things that are in that are uh, there are differences and see if there are bridges between the differences or if there are not, resolving it by democratic means, which everybody will understand. So, uh, I I I think it is respecting others, respecting other points of view, moving things along, and that's what I I learned to do. As and when I left the Court of Appeal. There was a renting of clothes and gnashing of teeth. Everybody was distressed that I was leaving. Uh, but I can't say they were all uh, equally thrilled that I was joining the High Court of Australia, but that's another story.
1: You were extraordinarily collegial in that role of President of the New South Wales Court of Appeal. In particular, I was always struck by the way in which you were able to maintain a friendship with the eccentrically conservative uh, Judge uh, Roddy Maher, um, how how did you go about um, creating that sense of esprit de corps, which uh, which which you, uh, the New South Wales Court of Appeal?
0: Well, before I came, the, the Court of Appeal, which was always a very, very strong court, intellectually, it was a very strong court. It it was sort of run in a militaristic type of way, top down, and uh, that was really the style, which is very common in the law. It's a very hierarchical arrangement, and that's partly because if you've got these rules, everybody will understand them, and therefore it will all work. And um, uh, but. That wasn't very congenial to me and and if I'd learned anything in student politics, it was that you get more out of people by um, engaging with them and by um, respecting them. And so uh, I introduced the idea of uh, a regular meeting and we had a meeting um, every uh, Friday uh, fortnight um, and the judges would meet around the table, They'd, we would have... Cups of coffee, um, raisin toast, slathered with butter. The <laughs> middle, middle-aged gents uh, really loved their raisin toast with butter. And um, and that was a way you could keep tabs on who owed uh, their their reasons and uh, if there were problems uh, and, and a proper way, sorting them out by consensus, by agreement, uh, and... Um, It it was a very agreeable place. I think looking back, that was probably the most agreeable time in my life because I went in with a great deal of, if not hostility, at least suspicion and anxiety that I would not be up to it. But I soon showed by doing more than anybody that I, I was up to it. Um, I would have some, some slightly different points of view, but that's judicial independence and everybody respected that. But we got on well together. And um, uh, Justice Marnie said it was a big change uh, in the court, in the atmosphere of the court, and it was a much more pleasant Place to be, and workplaces don't need to be uh, unpleasant. You can get more out of people if they're working with a, with a agreement, but that has to be agreement based on respect and on observing uh, a proper dimension of each other's contribution, and and not um, not uh, trying to sideline another person. Roddy Ma was not difficult to go on with at all. He was a very, very funny and witty person. He was hopelessly conservative uh, in some <laughs> matters, but we agreed on some other matters and uh, we, we, we found you have to concentrate on the things you agree on uh, outside work hours and, and that's basically what we did. He, he was very interested in history, uh, as was Justice Hayden very interested in history, very knowledgeable about history and therefore we would not talk about law when we had spare time together, we would talk about history and I would learn things and it was good.
1: Remember you once uh, sent me down for some errand down to his chambers, which uh, were sort of a few floors, floors down, and you knew you were approaching his office because the art just spilled out onto the walls, and not just the art, but I think, I think there were stuffed heads there as well if i 'm not uh, not imagining things it was uh, uh, that that larger than life personality uh, yes
0: he, he he really did know and love painting uh, and um, as well as history, he was very knowledgeable about that. He, he drove his wife Penny mad by spending all his money on, on it, though it probably ended up to be uh, a good uh, investment. And uh, uh, yes, he was, he was... I don't think he ever reached the level his brain entitled him to reach as a judge. I think he got bored with it, actually. Uh, And that was a shame because he really was a very brilliant... He actually, as a barrister, he was almost unique in this. He would come up and he would cut everything away, uh, as a judge will do, and cut away uh, arguments uh, and go straight for the jugular. He'd go straight for the winner point and he'd put all his eggs uh, in that basket. It 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 was a brave, courageous... Some might say foolhardy, but it was a very powerful form of advocacy, and he won a lot of cases, including my vote in cases, because he would he would think conceptually, and that was something I had learned in the Law Reform Commission. Mm.
1: Uh, in terms of uh, your work ethic, I mean, it's uh, legendary around uh, the Sydney legal legal community. Uh, the story that. My, uh, most comes to mind is of the uh, uh, female lawyer who'd received a range of Christmas cards and was calling around on Christmas morning in order to leave messages in people's answering machine to say thank you uh, and called your chambers and your dulcet tones immediately answered, Kirby. Uh, what was a traditional, a typical work week like for you when you were a judge?
0: Well, I would start uh, early on Monday morning and finish late on Sunday night. <laughs> it, it was... Uh, I was a hard worker, and I had a lot to do, and and I had a lot to get through. Um, I had, uh, as president of the Law Reform Commission or of the Court of Appeal, I had to do the administrative work as well as the um, the substantive work, and so that, that all kept me pretty busy. Um, and... Um, it was really a question of how engaged you were with issues. Some might say, well, the problem with you, this is the psycho biography coming out now, you were warped, poor thing. You were growing up, you didn't fully form as a a human being with human relationships and so you found work as the alternative. Mm. There may be a little bit of truth in that, though I always had the good, practical, common sense of the Netherlands at home. Whenever I would get home, I would I would get a very strong dose of practicality and feet on the ground. Uh, so it wasn't entirely that, but maybe I would have, even if I'd been a straight person, I, I would have just been one of those obsessive overachievers striving to... Uh, win that star or the crown in our days. I'm sorry, Andrew, I have to tell you this. Uh, when we did a very good essay, we got a, a crown, a red crown uh, of St Edward stamped on our book, or if we had been particularly spectacular, on our hand, which we could go home and show uh, our parents. <laughs> uh, that, uh, I've, I've, I suppose in a way, I've always been striving to get those... Crowns uh, and uh, stars and um, to do as well as I can. But that's not a bad thing, you know. That's how uh, progress is made, how societies are improved. It's a semi-Methodist way of looking at the world and for a little while I went to the local Methodist church uh, and the Sydney Anglicans were very like the Methodists and so it's a sort of roll up your sleeves, uh, do your best um, and... Try to make the world a slightly better place for the fact that you've wandered here and, uh, and so that's what I have done and that's what I continue to do.
1: I think you're selling yourself a little short in t- talking about sort of striving for the crown because it gives an image of somebody who is only after formal accolades that can go on one CV. But I remember at the High Court... Uh, walking back from lunch one day to discover you in the middle of the library area uh, entertaining a group of visiting legal librarians and telling them stories about being on the court and it was an activity which was never going to go on anyone's CV, was never going to be noticed in any formal context but was enormously valuable and I've seen you with legal students as well just taking the time to to talk to them one on one so there is that sense of uh, greater purpose beyond just getting the stars in you, I think.
0: Well, my father was a very um, gregarious person. Uh, He was a salesman for most of his life and Hmm. he he was really very um, engaged with other people and he liked... uh, In our family, there was always a joke Uh, if, if people came to the front... Door. My mother would stand them at the front door, and they would—they'd you know, have to be terribly important or very old friends to get over the threshold. That was really—that was Northern Ireland. Uh, my father was more Southern Ireland, and so he, he would take any excuse to invite people in. Uh, neither of my parents really drank alcohol. My mother never. My father a shandy at Christmas, and mm. so it was. Um, Uh, and neither was into um, gambling. My grandmother, my father's mother, uh, was interested in, in gambling and a little speculation here and there uh, with the local SP, I suspect. Um, Johan has also been interested in, in occasional bets. And when I would remonstrate this monstrous and unCalvinistic behaviour, he would say, but your life is full of excitement. You've got all those wonderful colleagues at work to deal with and you have excitement <laughs> day in, day out. This is how I get a little bit of excitement. And I think that's how my grandmother must have looked at it. But... This was a really <clears throat> um, a really Protestant sort of environment of um, no grog and no gambling and hard work um, this is the sort of archetypal Protestant work ethic
1: <clears throat> and what did you do to sustain yourself through such a such large it was such a prodigious output um, I know you. Enjoy travelling, uh, music. Uh, certainly not sport. Uh, what, what were the? What were your sources of, uh, of sustenance through uh, through I'll well, not
0: allow that work. comment on sports to go unremarked. Un- <laughs> un- uh, at at Fort Street High School. Um, uh, in my single minded determination to become a prefect and get the supreme crown on my forehead i um I did train to be a, a rugby union f- football um uh, referee uh, and I never ever played the knock on rule. I always was a very strict law and order. Person, uh, a black so letter referee, uh, exactly, and that really upset the the poor old players enormously. But um, but uh, it's true. Um, I was more interested in um, in music and in uh, and literature and and so on. So my spare time, such as it was, was was spent in uh, in that uh, that particular area and. Um, um, and and still is. If if I've got some spare time, um, I, I go through these periods. I've been through a Schubert period and then I went through a Mahler period, which uh, Johan said was definitely a wrist-slashing time in his life because of the very mournful uh, and uh, ever-so-long symphonies that I was going uh, through at that time. But... Um, I always go back to J.S. Bach and that's where I am. My iPod is full of J.S. Bach. There's always something new to learn from J.S. Bach and from his cantatas. And for somebody brought up in a Protestant Christian tradition, it's very comfortable to your spiritual tradition as well as your uh, musical uh, tastes because it, it's so mathematical it's, and mm, it's so mm. simple and pure and uh so um and really i'm i'm not very imaginative in in that jan knows much more about uh painting and art uh, and when we go to the rijksmuseum in amsterdam or to the other art museums there you go through and you see all these little uh, dutch girls and boys sitting there uh with their blue eyes and looking up and being told about Uh, the theory of the two sides of the face that they had in medieval portraiture, that one side was the good qualities of the person and the other was the bad qualities of the person. And this is something I never learned at school and uh, I really don't know much about um, uh, paintings and and, uh, other forms of art, but I do love music and it's interesting that... And I do love uh, uh, literature and... uh, uh, plays and Shakespeare and I can spout reams of Shakespeare off by heart because my father very interested in these things gave us as children uh, recordings, microgroove recordings of Shakespeare plays and um, so I have um, Marlon Brando in my brain as, uh, uh, as uh, Mark Antony in uh, Julius Caesar and John Gielgud and uh, Laurence Olivier in um, in Richard III and mm. Shakespeare is very oral and a bit like Rumpole of the Bailey, I'll go wandering around spouting in the middle of Afghanistan uh, these plays of Shakespeare and they get into your brain and they become part of your own dialectic.
1: Shakespeare's influence in the language is, is just extraordinary. Uh, how do you find time for big picture thinking? amidst all of the, the busyness of things to do, particularly in the, the time in the Court of Appeal where you had the administrative work, the, the judgments, and, and, of course, the speeches as well.
0: Well, the Court of Appeal was a very, very busy time uh, because of the, uh, the large number of cases you had to get through. And in a sense, I've always thought that the fact that the judges were always so busy uh, put a check on the ego because you just had to get through your work and you therefore Mm. had to cooperate uh, much more with each other because you generally sat as a bench of three uh, and that puts pressure on you to find common ground. Uh, But uh, in terms of um, uh, getting through it all, well, I just just worked harder. I would get in uh, in the Court of Appeal days at about 5 a.m., Uh, And I'm still getting into work most days at 5am. Now, most people think that's crazy, but it's a beautiful, beautiful time of the day. And I've always had an office that looks out uh, to the east. And so to see the sun rising in Sydney and see the beauties of the sky uh, and have no uh, phone calls and not even emails at that hour of the morning, most mornings, certainly not in Australia, you have a clear brain and that was a, that's a habit of life I got into at the bar and it's one that sticks with me. Early starts and not so early um, departures. I, I would work from 5 a.m. generally to about 7.30 p.m. and that's just a discipline of life and there's a lot to do. And I've always been involved in lots of things, lots of civil society organisations and and um, and that's kept me uh, interested and kept me young. I don't think that a person could do that nowadays because I was on a plane coming back to Australia this morning and the young Chinese-Australian um, people sitting next to me, they, they couldn't wait to dive into their iPhone. And their whole brain, their whole existence is now an extension of constant stimulation on the, um, on the iPhone. And um, I, I just think that's very distracting of big picture thinking. I think you're under the influence of instantaneous um, um, pressures and um, attractions, and therefore you're not thinking big picture. That's what people have got to preserve a space for that thinking. I get into the train at night. Alas, no more coal cars. And when I sit there, everyone is looking at their iPhone. There's no human contact. Not people don't even look at each other. They're not interested in anyone else. They're just looking at their iPhone. And, and I think that's going to be very damaging to human relationships and also to um, uh, to thinking in in, in just thinking, uh, which is. Not so easy if you're constantly being stimulated by uh, or looking for stimulation from and creating stimulation from a little machine. It's not go- I'm not going to win on this. I'm going to lose on this, but I'm not sure that it's good for human relationships or for big thinking. And the recent American election shows how powerful are the, uh, 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 the forces of social media and of animosities, anger.
1: Yes, and people say of Twitter that it's a great way of finding out what are the interesting long-form pieces which have been written. But I find in practice, if I'm skimming through my Twitter feed, reading a whole lot of short, sharp comments, then I I notice a a link to an interesting article, I click on it and I begin reading a 5,000-word essay about the Middle East. My brain sort of doesn't doesn't stick to it. Uh, I'm I, I'm after that sort of that instantaneous sugar hit, of the new bit of info, uh, of information, and it's hard to move away from the, uh, the 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 quick and quick and quirky into the substantive long long form journalism, which I know is going to be more important.
0: Yes, but perhaps in in your profession uh, as a member of parliament, you have to take account of, of what is the what is being said in the short, sharp uh, interventions, because that's the populace to which you are accountable. But I, I fortunately was never in that position and I could uh, indulge my thoughts in the areas that I was interested in. And uh, that was not only human rights, uh, it was also civil society in the way it organises itself um, that's the way in which we exercise our freedoms and and it's very close to the profession of law because of the fact that law is there to defend the civil society and to defend mm. diversity in civil society and my my life um, as a gay man had taught me how dangerous it was to have uh, narrow-minded views that, um, that dis, um, that dis respect a particular group just because they're, in some minor respect, different from oneself. I, I learned a lot from that, that experience and it wasn't a nice experience to go through.
1: What's your attitude towards hate?
0: Well, I don't think I'm, I'm really into the hate business. Uh, I think it, it can be very disturbing to your, um, your health and your own psyche that you go around hating people. I, I can't really think of anybody that I hate. Uh, I was attacked in the Senate by a senator, and I, uh, I think I would have had just cause to have hated him, but I didn't, and I don't. And I, I really felt more puzzled and hurt that uh, this would be done to me, a citizen in the National Parliament, Uh, But hatred is is such a destructive... uh, Unfortunately, in your vocation, there's a lot of it. uh, And towards your vocation, there's a lot of it. And I don't ever feel that way to members of different political parties uh, because I know, I've known many of them over the years and there are good people um, in both major political groupings and... uh, individuals have good and less good aspects uh, of themselves. So I don't sort of go along with um, the view that you, that everybody on one side is good and everybody on the other is bad uh, and that you should hate people uh, of a different political or religious or sexual persuasion. So I suppose this has come from my own experience learning about myself and learning how people really seriously hated uh, gay people. Mm. And there are still people who hate them. I saw a report which is the most uh, homophobic electorate in Australia. And uh, a gay man went up there to the electorate uh, and and spoke to people there. and they accepted him in, in a sort of polite way um, but there was such ignorance and hatred and um, it really is distressing that that's so today and it's really got to change and I think it is changing but it's still changing slowly and uh, the, 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 f- the fact that the plebiscite was put forward as a means of defeating uh, if possible, and certainly delaying a vote in the federal parliament, which has been held to have the full constitutional power to deal with the issue of um, same-sex marriage, uh, is an indication of, of how people with power um, can sometimes be full of hate. And that is, in uh, this day and age, with the knowledge we have from science, uh, is ridiculous. And it's, it's got to be called out. And I think it will increasingly be called out, but there are, uh, unfortunately, some signals that are uh, happening around the world that are not always terribly um, encouraging. And so it's a constant struggle, but the struggle goes on.
1: You've spoken a lot about uh, politics. Do you think if attitudes towards homosexuality had been different, more progressive, that uh, you might have embarked on a political career?
0: Oh, certainly. I, I would have been a juggernaut in, in big politics as well as in student politics. I was rather good at it. Um, but uh, certainly at the time I was, uh, would have contemplated it, I would have had to pretend. I would have had to disguise. I would have had to deceive. And I've just finished a book on the life and trial of Jeremy Thorpe the former liberal leader uh, of the British Liberal Party and how he got involved trying to suppress the knowledge of his sexuality and that that led to a charge of conspiracy to murder somebody who was putting the story around and and when you read about it and what he had to go through and this was the age I was growing up in in Australia and if anything the Brits were a bit more advanced than we were. They had actually changed the law by the time Thorpe was uh, leader of the Liberal Party in Britain but he still was under the pressure of society and so um, he still felt he had to do various things and it's a gripping book. Uh, and it shows the extremes that people were driven to. Well, I just would never... uh, And anyway, I had already met Johan, and uh, there's no way he would have allowed me to go along with that. In fact, when I took him along to Sydney University, uh, very soon after we met, we were both 29, and I was very proud of my report to the SRC, and I gave my report to the SRC and they looked on me with adulation and respect and gratitude Uh, and then I went out and I said to him, what did you think of that? What did you think of that? He said, a bit childish isn't it? At 29 with all those schoolboys talking about trivial matters don't you think it's a bit childish? I think you've got to grow up Michael Kirby and I had a long look at myself and I thought pretty good advice and he's been giving me that advice ever since (laughs) really feet on the ground and uh, I've been very fortunate so it really wasn't an option and Mm. it's not much point talking uh, counterfactually because although Australian public life is suffering a deficit of people of my talent nowadays, I'm afraid even I have to face the fact that I'm now far too ancient and so I've just got to get on with um, the activities which I'm doing, which are interesting enough and mainly now in the international sphere.
1: So let me wrap up with a couple of, uh, sort of gen- general questions. Um, what advice would you give to your teenage self?
0: I would uh, tell my teenage self to have more fun and I think that advice is more likely to have been respected nowadays than it was back in those days. A wise guy, I would have said back in my uh, youth, uh, teenage, uh, have fun, that's against the law and it's just not possible. I'll end up on the front page of the uh, afternoon newspaper. So um, it's a matter of looking at today and saying uh, realise that personal relationships and a sexual life and sexual fulfilment are very important aspects of being a full human being. And people who don't realise this or try to stop it have really got to get real.
1: What's something you used to believe but no longer do?
0: Well, I certainly don't believe uh, that the Bible is literally true. as I, I suppose I I unthinkingly did as I was growing up as a young person, but gradually you come to realise that uh, inerrancy is just not possible given the multitude of things that exist there, and therefore that that then presents the challenge. Well, if some is in error, then how do you tell the erroneous from the true and What do you make of the whole concoction? And that is the challenge of being a a mildly, slightly religious person
1: and patron of the rationalist society.
0: It's a problem (laughs) for them
1: and a partial problem for me. And egalitarian and monarchist. I mean, you're nothing if not a a, a man of uh, of of interest. Now, I'm not going
0: to let you get away with that, Andrew. There's nothing incompatible with uh, egalitarian and constitutional monarchy. Having an absentee overseas head of state is a very good practical arrangement. And actually, if you look at the world's uh, constitutional monarchies, they tend to be rather more temperate and egalitarian than uh, the, uh, the republics uh, that are on offer.
1: But there could not be any more inegalitarian way of choosing your head of state than to say that it will be a child of uh, a particular uh, gen- genetic line.
0: But it's a historical thing, and it's, it's really, this is a semi uh, anarchistic view of head of stateship. Heads of state can be an awful lot of trouble. And uh, the way we solve that in Australia is having this dutiful Germanic family who go about, you know, I had to present the report of the of the uh, high level panel uh, on the future of the Commonwealth to the Queen and I went to Buckingham Palace and I was ushered in through uh, the gates and I thought, This is a prison. This poor woman has lived in a prison all her life. She's got lots of baubles and beautiful jewels, but it's just like visiting a prison. And all of that she does for us, and she does it at virtually no cost to us in Australia, and it keeps an awful lot of horrible people out of the position. The day, well, I won't say anything about others because that would be political, but uh, it's, it's a system that that has its merits, and it's according to a recent book by David Hill, um, there is a new burst of enthusiasm since Wills and Kate and especially uh, George and Charlotte came on, so you watch it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> when are you most happy?
0: I, I'd i be most happy when I'm uh, in the company of Johan and... Uh, It sounds boring and suburban, but that's basically what it is. We gave away uh, watching television about 20 years ago. And so we uh, sit there and talk about things and having time and making time and keeping space, even in a busy life, to talk together. Um, Yawain's a great reader he reads all the books mainly histories and biographies that I wish I had the time to read and so he tells me about this he knows much more about uh, Tudor history in Britain than I know and um, that's a wonderful source of commonality as he once said to me uh, when we talked about a couple whether they're going to survive and most couples we've known straight and gay haven't Uh, He says, after the messy bits are over, can they talk about the early Etruscans? And this is the problem. Many people don't have much in common. And that's because originally they would be sitting watching the telly. Nowadays, they're just texting each other in in their uh, mobile phones. And so uh, we talk. I think that's when I'm happiest. That's when I think he's happiest. Uh, Except when I get on to subjects he doesn't agree with, like, vegetarianism. (laughs)
1: <laughs> What's the most important thing you do in your life to stay physically healthy?
0: Well, uh, I'm trying to uh, get more exercise. I don't put on a lot of weight, and I think that's because of my frenetic um, activities, a lot of travel, a lot of rushing around conferences and, and quite a lot of stress, uh, really, doing all that. Um, I, I'm now walking part of the way to work and if I can be very, very good in the new year I'll walk part of the way home as well um, so um, this, is, this is how I try to keep fit and diet and I thought I'd become wonderfully slim when I gave up eating meat but alas that hasn't happened uh, but um, uh, I, I am trying to exercise more discipline because it, it, I know it's good for you
1: do you have any guilty pleasures? Chocolate. And finally, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life?
0: Well, I think like most people, my parents really had the, the biggest influence on me. I was very lucky to have such loving uh, parents. They, never re- they were happy when I did well. They were reasonably happy to see those crowns uh, on my uh, wrist uh, but they never really badgered me they never uh, they never really pestered me to to do better they they were glad um uh, and encouraging but not obsessive uh, so they were really good models and and um learning from my grandmother's second husband who had been born a roman catholic and grew up he was a gallipoli uh veteran uh and became a communist, and then learning that he was hated uh, and that laws were passed against him, and that he was basically a very decent man who believed um, at that time uh, in a communist uh, way, uh, something my parents didn't and that I didn't, but uh, learning that you, people can have different points of view and, and that the way to counter that is by argument and persuasion not by uh, oppressive laws so i think um, these are there's so many influences affect your life and my parents my grandmother her husband my siblings uh, and my teachers uh, i've really had a blessed life a fortunate life but watch out for the psychological drama that is still to come and who will play uh, me in the psychodrama of my inner compulsions it would have to be an extremely handsome person a very hard-working uh, and no doubt a, a, um, uh, an oscar would be their reward
1: miniseries or movie do you think
0: oh don't let it get too uh, too ambitious <laughs> i think uh, half an hour an hour at the most
1: <laughs> michael kirby thank you for taking the opportunity to speak on the good life podcast today Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. If you like this podcast, can I ask you a favour? Would you mind putting something on Facebook to tell your friends? Next week, we'll be back again with another extraordinary guest talking about happiness, health and living an ethical life.